It's Friday, January the 25th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. This Sunday is Holocaust Remembrance Day, and it also sees the launch this week of a new book, Anti-Semitism Here and Now, by Deborah Lipstadt, who, as well as being Professor of Modern Jewish History and Holocaust Studies at Emory University, was the key protagonist in one of the most famous cases of Holocaust denial in modern times. Almost two decades on from that trial, the face of anti-Semitism has changed in many ways, and her new New book explores the dynamics of prejudice, discrimination and violence against Jews in 2019. Deborah Lipstadt, in 2000, you won a, a historic legal victory against the writer David Irving. Some of our readers may not be aware of it or may not remember it. He sued you for libel and that was dismissed in a London court on the grounds that your description of him as a Holocaust denier was actually correct and justified on the basis of the facts. It was a, it was a huge triumph at the time. And what I'm wondering is... The environment in which Irving was operating as a Holocaust denier at that point, how different was it from now, 19 years later? How has the world of anti-Semitism changed since then? The world of anti-Semitism, I think, has changed dramatically. Um, And yet much of what we saw then is present today. What's different today is that generally when we saw extreme anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism that caused worry, It was from either the right or from the left. It came from both directions, but it was at one time or the other. Um, Today, we see it from both the right and from the left. And then to make it a perfect storm, so to speak, we also see it from Islamic extremists or jihadists, whichever term you prefer. Um, And we see anti-Semitism in sectors, not entirely, but in sectors of the general Muslim community. I mean, EU reports have shown that. So today we're seeing sort of this, uh, again, to use the term perfect storm, coming from many directions in a way that uh, people hadn't anticipated. I I, I want to take those those three areas from which anti-Semitism is, modern anti-Semitism is, is, is occurring one at a time. And maybe the first would be um, on the right, which is, I think, the traditional place where a lot of people think it's found and it's certainly where uh, where Irving was. But we've seen a whole bunch of political developments in recent years, ranging from the rise of populist parties in Hungary and Poland, which are seeking to rewrite their, the history of their own countries and their role in the Holocaust, to things like the, the attacks on George Soros, which very often seem to thinly veiled anti-Semitism in, in countries like Hungary. Um, the sort of We have European elections coming up in a few months and some of these populist parties, including La Lega in Italy, which has fascist antecedents, talking about a new spring in Europe, protecting European Christendom, all these kind of tropes which, which have, a, have a historical uh, re- relevance or which is, which is rather, rather scary for those of us who know our history. And then in the United States, you had things like the events in Charlottesville and Donald Trump's reaction to them. So the right resurgent, as it is electorally in many parts of the Western world at the moment, has a very strong seam of, I suppose, what you could call traditional anti-Semitism in it. It it absolutely does. Um, And you mentioned Poland and Hungary. You could also add to that mix Austria, Germany, and as you noted, Italy. Um, This 
populist nationalism um, has very strong resonance to what we heard in Germany in, 19, in the 1930s, the, the 30s, early 30s before the uh, Nazis came to power and certainly thereafter. I'm not making a direct link to the Holocaust. I'm not saying, oh, there's going to be a Holocaust coming. All I'm saying is that the... Um, language that is being used, the charges that are being made, the tropes upon which many politicians are relying um, have deep-seated anti-Semitic roots. Uh, you know, talking about the memorial at the Brandenburg Gate in Germany as an AFD alternative for Deutschland leader, the right-wing populist group said as a, I think, a badge of shame or a scar in the heart of our capital city. Um, Mugging uh, uh, Le Pen, uh, you know, uh, saying that ch uh, children, French children, shouldn't be taught, uh, or arguing that too much emphasis is made on fr and, uh, on on the so-called French complicity with the Nazis. Um, you see it over and over again, um, and you see it in a way that people on the far right, including in my country. Um, that many people on the far right just assume that what they're hearing from as places as high as the White House and certainly the people around and beneath, outside the White House, but affiliated with that view, make this okay. So you have, for example, if not Donald Trump himself, and I think he may he has used this word, but certainly people around Donald Trump, including people like Steve Bannon, um, frequently using terms like globalists, which to me has very much the same ring as the use of the words like cosmopolitan um, 80 or 90 years ago. It's a code word for people who are not one of us. That's right. That's exactly right. Now, I'm not sure if Donald Trump knows that. <laughs> which is a whole other discussion, but but the fact that he uses it, either either it's being fed to him or he does know it. But if you just if you go back uh, a little over two years ago to his final ad of the campaign, you know the coda for the campaign, um, and you hear him, and I talk about this in the book, you hear his voice in the background uh, talking about globalist forces which have taken over and are controlling our economy. I'm paraphrasing here, but that's essentially what he was saying. And then there are four pictures which uh, scroll across the screen. One is of his opponent, Hillary Clinton, and then uh, Lloyd Blankfein, uh, the head of Goldman Sachs, Janet Yellen, then head of the Federal Reserve, and George Soros, uh, a Hungarian Jew, all three of them Jews. That couldn't be just by chance. Someone had to have been um, thinking that whether explicitly or implicitly, um, talking about nice people on both sides in Charlottesville. I'm sorry, nice people don't march through the street chanting, uh, Jews will not replace us. Um, the fact of the matter is that virtually everyone on the far right uh, and the not so far right, um, but those who engage in anti-Semitism believe that they have gotten dog whistles or wink, wink, nod, nod from the White House. So if that's not the message the White House wants to put out there, then they should rethink how they phrase what they're saying. Um, you know, if, if I if I 
if everybody assumed I had a certain political position, which I don't have and which, in fact, is an anathema to me, um, I would rethink how I'm saying things so that they don't hear that. And and we see that in this country, that um, the, the use of globalists, as you, you so rightly said, the use of the term globalist, cosmopolitan, um, has a ring to the anti-Semite. It's part of that uh, dog whistle. There's There's what seems to me to be a... Uh, a new twist to right-wing anti-Semitism, and I, I may be wrong that it's new, and maybe you can you can educate me in it. When those ticky torch wielding young white men were shouting, "Jews will not replace us in Charlottesville," um, my understanding is that they weren't suggesting that the entire United States was going to be entirely populated by Jewish people and nothing else. They were promulgating a, a popular uh, far-right theory, which you find you see in Europe and you see in social media at the moment, which is that um, migration uh, and multiculturalism and various other things, which which certain people don't like, are part of a globalist Jewish conspiracy. Um, is, is that a relatively new linkage between those two things, mass migration and the role of, of Jewish people? Well, I think, you know, if you go back to the heart of anti-Semitism, to the essence of the anti-Semitic stereotypes, uh, the notion is that here is a small group of people with who are smart in a very devious and nefarious way, and they are able to manipulate others who might seem more powerful than they are, but aren't as quite as smart, so they take it over, whether it's the Allies during World War II, whether it's Rome during, you know, the time of the crucifixion of Jesus, whatever it is that this group is ability has an ability to control um, and to get others to do their will. It's not that they're going to replace everyone. There aren't enough Jews to do that, but they uh, manipulate. They get others to do this for them so that some of those people marching in Charlottesville, I mean, I can't speak for them, but my guess is having read enough of what those groups say, et cetera, is when they say Jews will not replace us, they're not assuming that a Jew is going to come into every job. But but let's say an African-American gets a job or an African-American gets a position from their perspective, and now I'm using prejudicial stereotypes here, so <laughs> your listeners should listen carefully. Um, from from the perspective of the right-wing um, extremists, uh, that African-American is not smart enough or uh, good enough uh, to really replace him. Someone must be behind him. Someone must be manipulating this. Someone must be pushing it. And who could it be? Those Jews. So that's that replacement theory brought up to uh, contemporary terms. But it's been around for a long time uh, that the Jews work behind the scenes in this malicious kind of way, in this nefarious, devious kind of way. And uh, if you're not smart, you won't even notice it. To what extent do you think the changes in technology and media and communications, the rise of digital, the rise of the internet and of social media in particular, have contributed to the rise of anti-Semitism, given that all these technologies seem to make it easier to spread and develop um, conspiratorial theories about the way society is being run by a, by a small cabal? I think the social media has contributed a lot. Um, and made it much easier. Look, when I far, first started to write about Holocaust denial, 
uh, in the early 90s and through the 90s. Um, if you wanted Holocaust denial material, you had to have it sent to a P.O. box, a post office box, you know, not to your home address. And usually it came in a brown paper envelope or something like that. Today, all you have to do is bring up Google or whichever search engine you want to use and type in the words, you know, the Holocaust didn't happen, the Holocaust is a hoax, and you'll get it array of things uh, available to you. Uh, not so long ago, um, you know, if uh, if you wanted to make contact with other people who had uh, extremist views, you had to work hard, you had to reach out, you had to be proactive. Today, that's not necessary. Now, having said that, I don't want to blame it all on social media. First of all, I use social media. I use the Internet um, incessantly in my research, in my work, especially in these days when I'm writing about contemporary topics. Um, but it has made it much easier. And it may behoove those of us who are really concerned about this uh, not just in terms of anti-Semitism, but racism, extremism, fake news, um, to be um, m more careful, to be very, very careful um, about our use of this, uh, and, and to think about how to structure a fight or a pushback against these um, extremists that uh, uses social media. I mean, pe I know people are trying, but we have to think about it even more carefully. Let's let's turn to the, the second leg of this three-legged stool of anti-Semitism, which we mentioned at the outset, which is the left. I think a lot of people on the left uh, wrongly believe that it's not possible to have anti-Semitism on the left. But history teaches us differently. Anybody who knows anything about the history of the, of the Soviet Union, for example, and of certain other left-wing parties around the world will know that that's not the case. But is it fair to say that most anti-Semitism or accusations of anti-Semitism on the left ultimately derive from the political controversies around the state of Israel? I'm not sure that's entirely correct. I mean, first of all, one of the sources for left-wing anti-Semitism is, of course, Karl Marx, you know, um, who may have been born to Jew a Jewish parent, but still is non-Jew, and he and doesn't matter that's really irrelevant. But Karl Marx was quite... In his in his anti-Semitism, the God of the Jews is money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so I think it, it long predates it. Um, to some extent, though, you are right. Today, much of what we see on the left wing and the left and amongst progressives, not all progressives, of course, but many, um, is connected to Israel. But sometimes. Um, I fear that this, uh, I'm not an anti-Semite, I'm only talking about Israel, becomes a cover. I'm not talking about Jews, I'm only talking about Zionists, you know, that kind of thing, becomes a cover for anti-Semitism. It's sort of a, a good place to hide behind. It becomes a foil um, that I, I can't, I, I know if I say I don't like Jews, that won't go over big, but if you say I don't like supporters of Israel, that's accepted. Um, not that you have to like all supporters of Israel, but you know you get my gist that 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 it becomes an a uh, a, a replacement uh, a 
in place of anti-Semitism. No, absolutely. And you know, seventy or eighty years ago, Joseph Stalin was using Zionist as a uh, you know as a, as a euphemism for Jews to to carry out to carry out persecution. I suppose then the, the the question is that within the broad left or people who might characterize themselves as progressive or anti-imperialist, it, it it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it becomes more difficult to draw the lines to actually discern the motivation sometimes within something like the the boycott, uh, divest and sanctions movement against against Israel. Is that, in your view, the BDS movement, is that entirely anti-Semitic or are there different strains within it? I think there are different strains. Um, but first of all, let me just go back to something you said, to discern the motivation. Um, you know, sometimes I, I, I'm sure you're going to raise the question of Jeremy Corbyn and the British Labour Party. And um, I would say this about both the right and the left. I'd say this also about Donald Trump. I don't know what's in someone's heart. I don't know what they really believe. Um, uh, regarding Donald Trump, I don't think in his heart he's an anti-Semite. I think he loves his Jewish son-in-law, who was greatly responsible for helping him strategize winning the election. I think he's proud of his Jewish uh, grandchildren. But and, and with Jeremy Corbyn, you know, I, I don't know what's in his heart. But I do look at their at someone's actions, at someone's rhetoric, at what they say and what they do. And in that case, um, I see distinct anti-Semitism. We're talking about the left right now. I see it, uh, distinct expressions of anti-Semitism. I see arguments that are rooted in anti-Semitism being made. Regarding specifically about, yes, boycott the sanction of Israel. Um, I think I know on the American uh, University campus, there are people who support BDS who probably couldn't find Israel on a map. It's not easy. It's a very tiny place, but they, they hardly know where to look. I think some of them see it as a way of helping an oppressed people, and it's a benign kind of peaceful way of changing things. But if you look at the heart of the BDS movement, if you look at the documents uh, and the manifestos, so to speak, of those who are part, who have sort of created the BDS movement, what you see there is definitely a um, effort towards uh, the destruction of the state of Israel. You know, full right of return, um, a, a one-state solution, not a Jewish state, et cetera, et cetera. So while BDS may not be um, anti, overtly anti-Semitic, it's calling for the end of the state of Israel. It's calling for um, a state of Israel. So that's, I, I draw, draw that def, uh, differentiation. Uh, so listening to, listening to you, on that, I mean, there are here in Ireland, for example, there's legislation being proposed in our in our in our Senate, which is it's not BDS related, but what it is, it's it's calling for a ban on imports of goods which have been produced in the settlements in the occupied territories. I mean, a policy like that. Do you think that's a legitimate political position? Um, I have trouble with it. Um, I'm not calling it anti-Semitic, but I have trouble with it when it singles out Israel uh, to the exclusion of all other countries. Um, are they saying the same thing about Myanmar and because of its treatment, which has been called genocide by, by many international groups of the Rohingya Muslims, the Muslims in, in uh, Myanmar? Is it singling out Saudi Arabia for its treatment of women? Is it singling out 
other countries which have engaged in overt uh, persecution and discrimination towards particular groups, or is it only about the, the West Bank? Um, I think, you know, when there is a singular focus on Israel to the exclusion of all others, um, it makes, it, it just raises questions. I'll give you an example. We just had the Women's March here in the United States, um, and it's, it's a, it's, it's been sunk into a lot of controversy because the leaders have um, made common cause with uh, overt anti-Semites and have said things which are uh, really anti-Semitic, again, if not in intent, then in, in practicality. Um, and, but there was no mention of the women who were sitting in jail in Saudi Arabia or women who can't drive. Um, can't can't go anywhere, can't travel anywhere without the permission of a male relative. It can be a kid, uh, but it's got to be a male. Um, I'm just using that as one example. Mm. When there is a singular focus, you've got to ask why. Why this singular focus on this one uh, particular conflict, on this particular issue? Uh, there was an academic group in the United States that was uh, an academic organization that was pushing uh, for BDS and, and boycott not just of Israeli products, but of Israeli scholars unless they uh, acceded to a, some, almost uh, what we call in the United States McCarthy-like loyalty oath saying that they don't agree with their country's policies. Um, and when the, the head of that organization, a professor, was asked, uh, why you, why Israel? And she said, well, you got to start with someplace. You got to start someplace. And that's a very weak answer, you know, or there is no or they give you no answer. So when there is this singular focus, you somehow have to ask why. I suppose the counter argument that some people would make is they make it they make a comparison which which many people find very offensive between Israel and the apartheid regime in South Africa and at the time when boycotts were being launched against South Africa during the apartheid regime some people who were who were defending that regime to some extent pointed to human rights abuses in other African countries which people weren't confronting in the same way and that the, the response on the part of the anti-apartheid activists was that there was a there was a cultural links, there was a kind of a support for the apartheid regime through all kinds of, you know, sporting and academic connections, and that this was a way that you could hurt the regime because these things mattered to that regime. I, mm -hmm. I don't know what you make of that. Yeah, I, I, no, I understand that. Um, but I still think, first of all, I think the, the apartheid comparison is, is not a great comparison because, you know, there are Israeli Arabs in the Knesset, in the, in the parliament. Uh, Israeli Arabs have full diplomatic, uh, full citizen rights, etc., etc. There is a problem on the West Bank. There's no question about it. I think Israel hasn't helped itself with certain of its policies in recent years, recent months. Um, but, and I think, you know, uh, the, the nation state law, which was very uh, iffy about uh, full protections for non-Jews, et cetera, and, and, and declaring that it was a Jewish state. I don't know why they needed a law to declare it's a Jewish state. Every aspect of the state makes it a, <laughs> declares it's a Jewish state. Uh, so there are things that have been disturbing. Um, but I, I just, you know, as long as you have uh, uh, Arab citizens of Israel with full rights, I don't know that the apartheid analogy works, certainly within the Green Line. Do you think that the current Israeli government has, uh, in a way, made matters worse by, it seems to me to be very quick to denounce opposition to it as anti-Semitic, including from uh, Jewish organisations around the world when they're opposed to its government? 
Um, yeah, I don't know what specific examples you're talking well, about. Well, I think but you I talk do... specifically about, uh, is it J Street, which is a, oh, a progressive yes, Jewish okay. organization well, in that, the United yeah, States? That wasn't coming so much from the Israeli government. That was coming from the American Jewish establishment, criticizing an organization, which is critical, uh, a Zionist organization, which is critical of certain Israeli policies. I think it's very important to differentiate. You can be against Israeli policies. You know, if you want to read opposition to Israeli policies, I suggest you read Haaretz on a daily basis, and you will see their extreme, uh, you know, is one of Israel's leading dailies, extreme opposition to Israeli policies. Um, I think the difference comes when you are against the, the, the right of Israel to exist. I think then you're getting into much more uh, dicier territory, so to speak. Um, you know, some people say, well, Israel doesn't have a right to exist because of uh, there were the, all these uh, um, transgressions of human rights in the establishment of the state of Israel, etc. Uh, expulsion of Arabs and even many left on their own accord. But there were those we now know. Uh, well, uh, who were pushed out. Um, well, I think, I don't know of any country, certainly my country, uh, when we look back at the foundations of this country, the way Native Americans were treated, the Native Americans were infected with disease, uh, tricked, uh, cheated, even after they signed treaties, etc. Um, yet those same people which criticize that, rightfully so, uh, don't say, therefore, America shouldn't exist. If you look, I've been to Australia many times, Australia's treatment of uh, its native people, the Aborigines, etc. So there have been lots of mistakes and lots of wrongs. Um, but I think when, when you move, therefore, there should be no state, therefore, we should do away with the state of Israel, um, I, then I, I have to say, wait a minute, something, something is, is different here. There is a double standard here that doesn't seem quite right. And what's its motivation? Uh, you, you mentioned Jeremy Corbyn earlier on, and, and much of the, the criticism of Jeremy Corbyn and of other, other people in the Labour Party in the United Kingdom has been uh, by association, by them attending events or appearing on platforms alongside people who were clearly anti-Semitic and made anti-Semitic comments uh, while while they were present. Um, and I suppose that gets to the third stool, the third leg of this particular stool, which in a way is the most serious one in that it arguably um, is the most clear and present danger to people's actual lives, Jewish people's actual lives around the world. And you write about um, police with machine guns guarding synagogues and schools in, in France and in Germany, which is really a, uh, a horrifying thing. And most of that threat to, um, to Jewish people in Europe comes from members of the Muslim communities in those countries. Mm-hmm. That is correct. Look, I, I think you have to be very careful here because you, you want to be careful and talking about you're talking about a very large community and you want to be careful about drawing with a broad brush, which is often what happens in terms of anti-Semitism. Um, so certainly there have been jihadists, there have been Islamist extremists. Um, and if you look at the um, acts of violence, whether it's in Paris, whether it's in Brussels, whether it's in Copenhagen, where of Nice, wherever it might be, Toulouse, um, you you see that these acts murder murder uh, murder of children murder of, of of innocent people doesn't matter how old they are um, have been uh, conducted by Islamist extremists uh, you know we had the Charlie Hebdo and three days later the hyper event in in Paris 
And this uh, gentleman went to this Jewish uh, supermarket on a Friday because he assumed that's where he would find Jews um, and, and killed them and killed them. Um, so, you know, those kind of things are, are quite disturbing, but also disturbing. And there have been a number of EU studies in recent years, uh, the, uh, studies funded and directed by the, the different uh, commissions of the EU, which have found a great deal of anti-Semitism um, um, in, within the Muslim, uh, European Muslim community. Doesn't mean everyone, but a significant uh, amount, enough to cause concern. Does that mean that those people are therefore going to pick up a gun and do something? No, of course not. But it does mean a hostility, an opposition, a willingness to believe uh, prejudicial tropes and prejudicial stereotypes, and that's disturbing too. It also um, means that, that, that Jews in those countries feel that they can't be visibly Jewish, that they have to hide right. their Jewishness. It has a psychological effect as well as a... As it has a, a deep-seated psychological effect. Um, I was in Berlin a couple of years ago for a conference on anti-Semitism, and I was a member of the American delegation sent by the White House. And at one point, we met with a uh, a small group of Jews from different European countries. And one woman there who was a part of the European Union of Jewish Students talked about the fact that uh, the mem their membership was in decline because the Jewish students who felt strongly Jewish and identified and were not at all uh, conflicted about their Jewish identity, but when they got to university, they decided, I'm here for three years. I don't want to spend those three years being branded as a certain type or whatever it is or or having to def uh, continuously defend my Jewish identity um, and they just decided I'm not going to register with the European Union of Jewish Students though it was something they would have done pro forma uh, not so long ago. Um, I heard from parents, I hear this often, I mean I'm in the uh, United Kingdom um, three, four times a year, I've been to Ireland. I hear it, you know, all over where parents will say, look, uh, I bring my kid to the Jewish school, to the Jewish preschool, whatever. And, um, I'm always happy to see gendarmes there protecting them. And then as I walk away, I say, oh my God, I left my child in a place where they need a man with, or a woman with a machine gun to protect them. Um, or, uh, poor places in Europe where uh, Jewish men who may wear a kippah just automatically put on a baseball cap. Now that, as I, I tell in the book, often that doesn't work. I was in Berlin and I was looking for a particular synagogue, which had a certain kind of music that I wanted to hear. And someone who was giving me directions said, when you go, if you can't find the street, just it gave me two pieces of information. When you're on the street, just look for the policeman with the machine guns and you'll know where the synagogue is. But if you're having trouble going in that direction, look for men in baseball caps and follow them. <laughs> and I laughed, but that's precisely what happened. So. If you feel that, you know, I can't fully express my identity, I have to, when I'm going out in the street, if I'm wearing a t-shirt that might say uh, Limud on it, you know, the Jewish Learning Festival, or it might say, uh, I don't know, the name of my synagogue, or might have a Jewish star, I should take that off because it's dangerous. If I'm wearing a Star of David around my neck, I should tell my children or my children are wearing it, put it under your shirt, not over your shirt. Um, you should be careful. That's going back to an age in which Jews lived, uh, certainly through the 30s and 40s in different countries, uh, you know, what we call in, in 
paraphrasing this from using the Yiddish, still, quiet, quiet, don't make a fuss, don't, don't, you know, don't proclaim your Jewish identity. Um, you know, there's, a, there's an old Jewish joke of uh, two uh, deserters in a, in a war who were, who were caught and brought back, both of them Jews, and they're standing before the firing squad, and the uh, officer in charge says, um, well, you have a last request. Do you want anything? The first one says, no, 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 I don't want anything. The other one says, well, I'd like a cigarette. And the first one says to the second, stop it. You'll make matters worse. You know? <laughs> um, it's, it's that Jewish sense of ir- irony, which Jews have, despite what Jeremy Corbyn will tell you. And, and um, you, you argue in the book that, that that sense of threat, which, which which justification Jewish people feel, is not treated as seriously as it should be by the political establishments in those in those countries. That is entirely correct. I do think there are certain uh, political governments and, and uh, which do take it seriously, uh, but sometimes they only take it seriously after a tragedy. Um, but it's certainly not taken seriously by certain people in the political world. And here we, we are talking more about the left than the right. Um, you know, that Jews don't present as, uh, and I put in quotation marks, typical victims, um, in that for, for some people on the left, progressives, and not all progressives, but some, you know, those people around Jeremy Corbyn, or in this country, in certain progressive groups, uh, their view of the world, of the of prejudice in the world, is refracted through a prism with two facets, a ethnic facet and a class facet. So if you do not present as a person of color, so to speak, or a a, a poor person, then you can't be a victim of prejudice. Now, of course, the idea that the people on the left see Jews as white is ironic because people on the far right see Jews as not white. You know, the, the gunman in in Pittsburgh, when he came into the synagogue, was yelling how, uh, I, I don't remember exactly what his words were, I haven't paid that much attention to him, but, um, uh, you know, white people will not be replaced, et cetera, et cetera. But, but for the person on the left, in order to be a victim, if you seem to have power and you seem to have privilege and you're not of color, then you can't be a victim. And they, so they say, well, you can't be a victim. You're accusing me of anti-Semitism. You're saying you were exposed to anti-Semitism. That, that, that just doesn't fly. That's just not um, uh, possible. Therefore, your accusation against me must have some ulterior motive. Yeah. And what could that motive be? And of course, if you're Jeremy Corbyn, ah, you're just trying to cover up for your support from you know my opposition to Israel, or your your cover up your support of Israel. Yeah, because listening to what you're saying there, I, I, I recall one anecdote which you which you have in the book, which is about a student asking about um, how many Jewish bankers there actually were in the 1920s right, and 1930s right. in Germany. And there are two answers. I think you start trying to give an answer to prove that contrary to the the allegations, the entire banking system was not run by was not run by Jews. But then your colleague, I. I think goes so what you know and and right, again exactly. and again one of the things that strikes me about the Jewish experience is that I mean I'm Irish and in Ireland we pride ourselves you know when when our small country you know as we say punches above its weight and has a strong tradition <laughs> in literature or whatever it might be but there is no small nation on on earth that punches and has punched above its weight more than the Jewish people in terms of their contribution to the sciences to philosophy to politics to medicine to 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 everything, really, it's 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 quite mm. extraordinary, isn't it? And so, it's, so, so, what is the right answer to that? Isn't that's it? That's right. I gave the wrong answer. The irony is, the colleague of mine who said so what is a, a Italian 
uh, Catholic, who was an Italian, uh, Di Concini, her name is, you know, Italian-based Catholic, who had been a nun for 12 years. I was, when the student, I was talking about the history of anti-Semitism, and, um, and, and we were, this was, of course, on films of the Holocaust, and, and I was talking about the, uh, and the irrationality of anti-Semitism. One student raised her hand, and in a very innocent way, you know, repeated an anti-Semitic trope when she said, weren't all the bankers and the lawyers in in Germany Jews and I said and I began to ask, answer and say wait a minute there were fewer than 600,000 Jews in Europe in 1933 there's 60 million non-Jewish Germans and there's this banking house and that banking house and I'm giving all these statistics and and my colleague you know this former nun uh, uh, stands up and says and looks her right in the eye and says so what and that was the right answer because what I had done, see, anti-Semitism, as with virtually every, oh, not even virtually, I don't have to qualify it, with every, every, as is the case with every prejudice, is irrational. Think about the word prejudice, prejudge. I've made up my mind, don't confuse me with the facts. I've decided beforehand because you are black or you are gay or you are whatever, that you are X, Y, and Z, that you fulfill these characteristics. It makes no sense. But what but what I had done is slip into the um, stereotypical views and answer an irrational question with a rational answer. And when she stood up and said, so what? So what if they were all the Jews were bankers or all the Jews were lawyers? If you're in trouble with the law, you want a lawyer. If you need a mortgage, you want a banker. If you need a loan to start a business, you want a banker. You know, we all up. But but again, it becomes it becomes a trope. Um, or as you put it, when Jews punch above their weight, ah, so many Jews, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And it feeds right in. It, it builds on and feeds into those anti-Semitic stereotypes. Uh, uh, finally, I just want to ask you um, one last question. Just looking at the current state of the political landscape and how it intersects with these issues, it seems incredibly fluid and potentially worrying. One thing is, is it's all very confusing. You have these rise of these populist parties in Europe, which are very often are, are both um, are both anti-Semitic and are also um, are also anti-Muslim or Islamophobic. Um, they are uh, they sometimes have very good relationships with Israel, which in turn now has quite a hard, what I would characterise as a hard right nationalist government. The the the, the alliance um, that is represented by the Trump presidency includes both anti-Semites and people who would describe themselves as probably as philo-Semites, whether that's right or not, some for the weirdest of reasons on the evangelical Christian right. Um, so everything seems fluid. Um, traditional um, systems of government seem to be under stress, which historically has never been a good thing for Jews. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, uh, would you be as worried as I am about the way the trends of these issues at the moment? You know, I'm generally an optimistic person. I say uh, it, was, it is the fact that I'm an optimistic person that allows me to cavort in the sewers of prejudice, hatred and anti-Semitism for all these years. But I am very worried. Um, I'm also, you know, sometimes I'm not dissuaded by philo-Semitism because uh, there's an American journalist, Franklin Foyer, who did defined a philo-Semite as an anti-Semite who likes Jews, you know? So, uh, and the book of Proverbs, there's a line in the book of Proverbs where it's the, the, the uh, speaker says to the honeybee, I don't want your honey and I don't want your sting. Just stay away from me. And sometimes I feel like that. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. Um, 
things are far more fluid today than they have ever been. And uh, you find groups that are overtly anti-Semitic that then will become, oh, we love Israel because it is that ethno state we want to create in America or wherever else it might be. It's a fluid situation. It's a difficult situation. Um, uh, you know, uh, George Soros, it doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum, Viktor Orban and his attacks on George Soros, which are not thinly veiled. Every Hungarian saw those as anti-Semitic attacks. Um, now, you know, the government of Israel may not like Soros's position vis-a-vis -vis Israel, uh, but, but Orban was relying on anti-Semitism as a tool. Uh, and maybe in, in closing, this is the, the depressing part that both the right and the, on both the right and on the left, I don't want to say the entire right or the entire left, but on the right and on the left, we find people who are using this as a tool uh, to advance their interests, to advance their political positions. And as I said earlier, they may not uh, be anti-Semitic in their hearts, whatever that means, but they're using anti-Semitism. And on some level, and I say this with, with a measure of irony, on some level, um, that's almost more disturbing because an anti-Semite who truly hates you out of conviction um, is, is on some, at least honest about what he's, he or she is feeling. But someone who just will use it for uh, efficacious, you know, because it's efficacious um, is more disturbing. Uh, the the l very last point I want to make, however, having said all this, and, and it's, a, it's, it's how I end the book, that, um, you know, even though Jews have been subjected to horrific things in the past and, and this, this new um, reemerged anti-Semitism today, that I really hope that the world doesn't think of Jews just as victims and that we don't think of ourselves speaking, taking off my academic hat and putting on my personal uh, kippah, if you would have it, um, that we don't think of ourselves as victims. Jews have given a tremendous amount to the world. Jews have a, a, a very multifaceted, vibrant, rich heritage. And to let that be subsumed or taken over by a notion of persecution and victimization would be a great tragedy. Deborah Lipstadt, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for the time. And Deborah Lipstadt's book, Anti-Semitism Here and Now, is published by Scribe. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can email me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. <laughs>